Uh, your Bible probably has the heading, The Loveless Church. And we look there about the Lord's uh, commendation, His correction, um, and then what He had to say about their response. We come into chapter 2, verses 8. Your Bible might have the heading, The Persecuted Church. The Persecuted Church. And uh, I'm just going to read that, verses 8 through 11, if you'll read along with me. Sorry. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty. And I know that blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. If you would, pray with me. Father, we come tonight, Lord, knowing that Your Word, through the power of Your Spirit, is the only thing and the only one who can teach us, enlighten us. And so, Father, tonight I pray that You would forgive me of any sin in my heart and life that would grieve Your Spirit, that would quench Your Spirit. Lord, we just thank You for the treasure that is Your Word and the privilege to gather together as Your church. And Lord, we ask that all that is said and done tonight honors you and you alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you're taking notes tonight, and uh, uh, there should be in front of you there, the very first on verse 8, that very first blank line, this was a faithful church. This was a faithful church. And there are a lot of descriptions that we give churches. Sometimes we call them big churches. Sometimes we call them small churches. Sometimes they are traditional churches or contemporary churches. But really, what I pray for this church and for my marriage and for my life is that God would find us faithful. I think that is the most important thing that we can do is to be faithful. Think about in your personal life. Do you want to be known as a person that is unfaithful or faithful? In marriage, do we want our spouses to think of us as faithful or unfaithful? In our places of employment, are we faithful or unfaithful? And as a church, there are only one of two categories you can fit into. Either a faithful church or an unfaithful church. That has nothing to do with size. There are small churches that have been faithful to the things of God. And there are large churches who have been unfaithful. But what we see here in the church of Smyrna is a faithful church. I never hear that as a church description from people. Is your church faithful or unfaithful? They say, are you a big church or a little church? Are you a contemporary church or a traditional church? Are you a church that dresses up or dresses down? But I want people to know that is a faithful church. But more importantly than what others think about us is what does God say about us? This is a faithful church. You say, well, Jake, we've been open 203 years. We have to be faithful. Not necessarily. Just because you have long life doesn't mean you've been faithful or unfaithful. What makes a church faithful? Well, we looked last week that you have to love God and love each other. If you will do those two things, you are well on the way. And as we go through each one of these churches, what He commends them on is what makes them faithful, that they endured persecution. Next week, we'll look at the compromising church. A faithful church doesn't compromise. The week after that, we'll look at the corrupt church. A faithful church does not let corruption ruin everything. A faithful church does not become dead in their worship. And it goes on and says in chapter 3, verse 7, the title, The Faithful Church. 
And so my prayer is that when I leave this world at some point and stand before the Lord, I hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. It doesn't say perfect because none of us are perfect. No pastor is perfect. No deacon is perfect. No church is perfect. But when we do make mistakes, are we willing to ask God to forgive us? Lord, we've messed up as a church. We've let something else become more important than you. Forgive us. As a husband, I shouldn't have lost my temper. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been prideful. I, God, forgive me. And to my wife, forgive me. And so what we look at the church of Smyrna, if you have your uh, notes there with you, it is today, modern day, Izmir, Turkey. And if you have your uh, map from a few weeks ago, you can look at where that is at. But Smith Bible Dictionary states this. It is a city of Asia Minor situated on the Aegean Sea, 40 miles north of Ephesus, the church we looked at last week. Allusion is made to it in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. It was founded by Alexander the Great and was situated two and a half miles from the city of the same name, which after a series of long wars with the Lydians had finally been taken and sacked by Helites. The ancient city was built by some piratical Greeks 1,500 years before Christ. It seems not impossible that the message to the church in Smyrna contains allusions to the ritual of the pagan mysteries which prevailed in the city. We'll stop right there just for a moment. This was a city that was obsessed with the worship of the emperor. Now, this is different from submitting to the government. We know the Bible says that we're to pray over the rulers of us and we are to obey them as long as it doesn't cause us to contradict with God. But in this city and in the Roman Empire, they worshipped the emperor as a god. And they were to worship him as a god. That means they were to sacrifice. That means they were to worship. They were to have uh, objects. And so this church said, no, we will not worship the emperor as God. We will not worship government as God. And if you've not watched what's going on in America today, government has become God. Government is the answer to every problem. Just more of it, more of it, more of it. But these individuals struggled with that. This was a city that had sided with Rome in its different wars. And so it was a city that was loyal. It was a city that was focused on that idolatry. And here is this church in the midst of this culture that says if you do not worship the emperor, you'll be put to death. We know that that is probably why John was on the Isle of Patmos because he would not worship the emperor. But yet these people did not have the privilege of being exiled to an island. Many of them had been put to death. Many of them were going to be put to death. And so if you would flip over to the next page, there are some pictures of ruins today in Smyrna. If you were to go there, uh, the Roman Forum, where they would have done business and conducted different elements of government. The Agora of Smyrna underneath there in the arches was a market or a public place of business and to settle financial disputes. And so if you were to go there today, you could see these ruins that would have been when this letter was written. And on the next page, it is a picture of modern-day uh, Izmir, Turkey. It is a modern city. It is a city with a couple hundred thousand people today. It does still, even though it is in Turkey, has a strong Christian presence, which is uh, very encouraging. But I want you to see this today because sometimes when we read our Bibles, we think that, well, it was a different time, it was different people, it was different situations... And while that is true, it was a local church just like this one. It was a group of people who loved Jesus and loved each other. And because when we go to verse 8, the second part there, what made it faithful? It was faithful because of who they worshipped. It was faithful because of who they worshipped. Look there in the second part of verse 8. These things, says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. It's referencing that Jesus is the one who is giving this message. And if you read chapter 1, you know that this has already been 
used as a title for Jesus. And what it means is that Jesus was before time and He will exist after time. He has always been, He is, and will always be. And so when they begin to hear these words that you're going to face persecution, you're going to face difficulty, the number one thing that I think all of us think about when persecution comes or difficulty comes is how long will this last? And so he's telling them, don't worry about it. God was with you before it started. He will be with you while it's going on. And he will be with you after it's over. And I think that's really important to all of us whether it is an emotional crisis, whether it's a spiritual crisis, whether it is a health crisis, and we get in those moments and we ask God, Lord, when is this going to end? How much more can I take? God is the first and the last. But the second part of that, who was dead and came to life, says that He is the God over sin. Because truly, sin leads to death. And so if you're facing an end-of-life situation it usually causes people to what? Think about where they're going to spend eternity. I have preached a lot of funerals. I don't do a great job, but I'm the only one usually available. So it's like, hey, Jake will do it. We know him. It's short. So, But for the first time ever, I did a funeral recently, and a young man came up to me after the funeral and hugged me and said, the gentleman that died was agnostic, and so am I. And uh, I don't preach people into heaven. If I don't know your testimony, I'm not going to say it at a funeral. I'm, go- I'm just not going to. Uh, and I was just sick to my stomach. And the gentleman said, but he did have a Bible on his nightstand. And he had been reading it. But I just stood there and thought about that because then we went to the graveside and we went down to the cemetery, and I always use the same verses at every funeral. And so if you don't like the one you've heard me preach before, find someone else, all right? (laughs) But I always talk about how for the world, this is the most saddest of occasion if you don't know the Lord. Whether you've got 50 years, 60 years, 80 years, 90 years, this is as good as it gets. And you end up in a box on a hill or in a valley or wherever it is. But... If you've read 1 Thessalonians, you know that Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to be unaware that one of these days Jesus is coming back. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are coming with Him. And the dead in Christ will be raised. And those of us who will be remain will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And we shall be with the Lord forever. And so while the sight of a grave is still hard, no matter if you're a believer or not, this is not it. This is is not as good as it gets. There is a heavenly reunion that will last forever. And what John is wanting them to know that Jesus says is, whether you lose your life or it is spared, I am the Lord. I am the one that has forgiven you of your sins. I am the one that gives you your salvation. And they can't take it from you. And so they were faithful, not because of their actions or their deeds, but because in who they believed. They believed in Jesus Christ. And so as a church, we can do a lot of great things. But if we ever lose who Jesus is, we are no longer faithful. I uh, was listening to a set of sermons this week about prayer and why we pray to Jesus. Because He is our high priest. He is our mediator. And the discussion was brought about the significance of praying to Jesus or praying to others. And is it a big deal or is it not a big deal? And the sermon was a very strong sermon on that it is a big deal. And the reason is because sometimes the mindset is that God is this Father who is stern and is a disciplinarian. And Jesus is someone who loves us and died for us, but He is not as sympathetic as His mother. And so if you pray to His mother, then she can go to Jesus. And because Jesus would do anything for her, then He would do anything for me. And He says the danger with that is, is to take away from the nature of God. Because the Bible says that God is 
long-suffering, that he is compassionate, that he is merciful, that he wants us to approach him, that he wants us to draw near to him. And so anything that gives us the idea that we can't approach him with boldness, like the book of Hebrews says, we come Abba, Father, right? Daddy is dangerous because then it feeds into the notion that God is overbearing and He's cruel and He's distant. And when you talk to lost people, that's their view of God. He's some big old white guy with a big white beard, not Santa, in heaven that is looking down on them, waiting for them to fail, waiting for them to mess up, that He can strike them, that He can correct them. But yet the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he said, so the issue is not about prayer. The issue is about the fact that it changes who God is in our mind. And if you begin to change who God is, that is a problem. If you are teaching people that God is someone that He's not, if you are adding to His attributes or taking away from His attributes, you are teaching a false gospel. Because you're teaching a God that doesn't exist in the Scriptures. And so it was just a really good set of sermons and questions and answers. And so who you worship makes all the difference. Because all of us are going to disagree on different things, right? There are plenty of things in the Bible that you and I are never going to see eye to eye on. And that's okay. But there are some things that we cannot differ on. They are the core elements of our faith who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, what He did for us. Those doctrines that cannot change must be what we worship. And if we will worship Him in spirit and in truth, according to His Word, we will be faithful. Questions, discussions, disagreements? Is that when you're splitting God up into... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Personhood, but mm -hmm. and even in Jesus' own ministry, he came to do the will of the mm -hmm. Father. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if the Father was angry and mm -hmm. all about just judgment, yeah. he never sent the Son. Absolutely. And then on your funeral, they're having the Bible on the bedstand. You could be the most well-read atheist, agnostic, mm -hmm. gnostic, whichever flavor you are. Mm -hmm. Here. Absolutely. God has to open our ears for us. We can't make that happen. Yeah. We, can, we, can, we can seek the material, but to have the understanding is, is a spiritual thing. Absolutely. Other thoughts? All right. Verse 9. Even a faithful church has challenges. Even a faithful church has challenges. Because most of us like to think that we're too blessed to stress, right? That we've got more than we could ever need. Uh, the only signs of good church is when things are going well. But even a faithful church has challenges. Look in verse 9 with me. I know your works, tribulation and poverty but you were rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue, or that word can mean congregation, of Satan. So he tells them, I know that you are willing to live for the Lord no matter the cost. Because what we see here is this, for tribulation and poverty, these were individuals that if they did not worship Caesar, they couldn't do business. They were not able to buy and to sell. They would have been excluded from certain economic opportunities. And so if you go back to that picture of the Agora of Smyrna, and if you can imagine shops being set up in there or carts or however they would have been selling something, food, and different things. And if you were to walk up and someone say, I will not sell to you because you are a Christian. Or I will not employ you because you are a Christian. It gives us the same idea of what it's going to be like in the tribulation period for those that are born again. 
when they are saved after the rapture of the church and they are not able to buy or sell. We see this on a small setting here. If you were here Sunday night and heard the sermon from the, um, the book of um, <laughs> Amos, Amos. Uh, it was all about the poor, right, and how they were taking advantage of the poor. And um, I was here, I promise. Uh, but uh, we know that the Lord takes that very serious. But in this setting, it was His children. And if you remember what the Bible says in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, so Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. He says, while you might not have anything on this earth, you are storing up your treasures in heaven, where moth and rust cannot get to them. And I think this is important, not so much for us as Americans, but when you think about the church throughout the whole world, how much poverty there is, when you think of countries like Africa and Nicaragua, and how they have very little financially, and how they struggle in certain Middle East countries that are Islam in nature to be excluded because of their faith. We see here that for them this must be encouraging because in our mindset, if a church has a big budget and a big building and lots of staff, then they're successful. They have arrived. But yet Jesus says, do not not evaluate your blessings and what God has given you by earthly treasures. There's nothing wrong with earthly treasures, right? If God has blessed you financially, enjoy it. Be a cheerful giver. Be generous. Enjoy it. Use it for the Lord. But if the day comes when we are persecuted for our faith to the point that we cannot buy or sell or own, think about the Christian bakers and the Uh, different Christian wedding planners that have been sued and lost their businesses because they would not perform a service for a a certain client because they feel it objects to their religious beliefs. Lose everything. It might be coming and God might spare it for a while. I cannot speak to that. But don't put your worth in what you have. And as a church, we cannot put our worth and what material blessings we have. We should be thankful for them. But that's not, that's not the ultimate thing. Questions? Thoughts? All right. Slander. The second thing that a faithful church might face is slander. You see, in this day and age, the unbelieving Jews, as you see there, were slandering them calling them heretics and troublemakers. We know that the Jews persecuted Paul and the early church everywhere he went. And there is a difference from disagreeing with someone and slandering someone. The early Jewish synagogues could have let the church do what they wanted, mind their own business, and worship God according to the Old Testament. It was still wrong, but they didn't. They persecuted the early church. And in this city, they were going to the Roman government, just like they would have done with Jesus, made false accusations, would have done everything they can to cause trouble. But listen to what Matthew chapter 5 says in verse 11. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. There are a lot of things in the Bible that I struggle with. But this concept is probably the one that I struggle with the most. I have lots of faults. I have no trouble telling you most of my faults on a regular basis. But when someone decides to add something to my list of faults that is not true... And I hear about it, 
it usually eats me up. I, I got plenty of things you could gossip about. Plenty of things that you could stir up. But when you hear one of those that you know that you didn't do, I struggle with that. I struggle with that when I hear it about our church, the decisions that we make or why we make things. I was uh, telling someone this afternoon that uh, I love to sit in my office with the door shut. And when someone knocks on my door, it's just like anxiety begins to rise. Because it's like, oh boy, who's here? What's wrong? What have they heard? And you say, Jake, you shouldn't think that way. You're absolutely right. But I have the privilege of being here, from here, growing up here. And so anybody and everybody's like, oh, I know his parents, his grandparents. I wouldn't usually say this to most preachers, but it's just Jake. And so in that moment, I think I wish you wouldn't have, right? But it it can cause great struggle. And if you've ever had something said about you that wasn't true, that assaulted your integrity or your moral beliefs, it hurts. But Jesus encourages them and says, Blessed are you. Blessed are you. I've never got up in the morning and said, Boy, I hope I get the blessing of someone reviling and talking bad about me. But when that happens, and it will, God wanted them to know that your worth is not based on what others say about you. The lies and the rumors they are telling about you is not who you are. And that's why it's so important for us as Christians to know who we are and what God says about us. That we've been forgiven. That we've been adopted into His family. That we've been washed as white as snow. That our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That we're in the palm of His hand and nothing can separate us. Because if we don't know who we are in Him, when the slander comes and the false accusation comes, it rocks us to our core. But Jesus said, if it's for His sake, you are blessed. Thoughts? All right. Turn over to the next page because these words are extremely strong about the synagogue or congregation of Satan. Now we look at this and we attribute this to the Jews of this day and what the Jewish people were doing. But the issue with why they were being called the congregation of Satan was for their behavior, what they were doing. And what they were doing was lying about the people of God. One of the quickest ways that a church can lose the blessing of God is by lying about other believers slandering other churches. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't disagree with other churches. That doesn't even mean that I don't like to joke with my other pastor friends about what makes us Baptist and what makes them Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal. I love to joke about things like that. It doesn't bother me at all. But we must be very careful when we begin to attribute things to churches that's not really true why they make decisions or what they did to a pastor or how they treated a deacon or all of these things. And the number one way that that happens, and this is going to hit really close to home, and if you don't like it, throw a hot dog at me, all right? Is a lot of times when we leave churches and what we say about the church that we left or when a pastor comes and goes... Well, I didn't like the last guy. Boy, I tell you what, he just preached too long. If you didn't like long sermons from the last guy, it's getting ready to happen again, and I'm looking forward to it, all right? (laughs) I'd rather listen to two of his sermons than one of mine. And so that's just things. But I cannot begin to tell you how many times I'll meet with a church to try to help them hire a pastor. It's never me. I'm always like, this is not the guy you want, all right? but just the awful things that can be said that just shouldn't be. And so we must be very, very careful as we talk about other churches, as we talk about other believers, that we would be much better off praying for them than slandering them. Praying for them rather than destroying them. And this is super hard. I'll be the first to admit it because I have an opinion on everything. And everyone, I am a wonderful Pharisee when I'm in the flesh. 
But yet look what it says in John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, sometimes we view this, that means we can't say anything. Recently, the Southern Baptist Convention, which we are a part of, removed five churches from our fellowship. That means they voted that their beliefs, that their practices were no longer in agreement with our faith. And so they voted to disfellowship them. All right? That was a church of the same nature, the same family, dealing with issues among its people. Right? It's not the Southern Baptist Convention's job to police the Presbyterians. It's not the Southern Baptist Convention's job to police the Pentecost. Right? We work together. We are held accountable together. And so there are times when we call out sin, we call out errors, but it is never to be personal. And it is never with the intent to destroy. We always go to those we disagree with for what? for the goal of reconciliation. Even in our own church, if I've got something against you and you've got something against me, I don't disagree with you because I want to ruin you. It's because I want to reconcile with you. I like to drink my coffee like the Lord intended. Black. All right? That's how coffee should be drank. Some of you disagree strongly and you fill it full of all that stuff that makes it taste good and, and, uh, and unhealthy. Right? But if you like sweet tea, I, I really agree with you. But if you drink unsweet tea, I have no idea why. I don't know why you drink dirty water, okay? And so if I'm back there waiting tables and you come up and want a sweet tea, I'll be like, would you like some dirty water? Okay? Yes, love some, as some of you do. You know, that is a joke, all right? And we can do that as believers, okay? But we must be very careful. And I want to stress this. Because I would never want the Lord to look at a group of people and say, that's a congregation of Satan. They are destroying one another. They are destroying people. The Jewish people were not even Christians. They were Old Testament people who believed the Old Testament ways, but yet they were destroying a New Testament church. And so be very careful when you disagree not to destroy It could. It could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not really sh- exactly sure, but we know that the church was persecuted for hundreds of years in this very city after this letter was written. All right. this is, we'll have a few verses, so hopefully I'll get you out short tonight. Verse 10. A faithful church trusts the Word and the promises of God. Trust the word and the promises of God. Because in verse 10, he's told them all this about slander. He's told them this about uh, poverty. Uh, But he says, do not fear. Do not fear. And you think, well, slander and poverty is not bad. I don't have to fear that. But he goes on and says, any of those things which you are about to suffer... That's when I stopped like, wait a second. You're, you're not talking about poverty and slander. There's, there's more coming? Indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Pay attention. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The Bible is full of do not fear. Isaiah 41 verse 10, it's one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God doesn't just say don't fear because I said so. He says don't fear and this is why. 
He said, I'll strengthen you. He's like, I will be the one that helps you. I will be the one that upholds you. God says, don't fear, not because of you or because of me, but because of Him. He is the one that goes with us. He is the one that fights for us. He is the one who never leaves us nor forsakes us. And so the struggle with fear is not that we have it. We all have fear. We all struggle with different things. Why fear is such a dangerous sin is because it begins to call into question the character of God. I'm afraid of this. Why? Well, I don't know if God can. Well, God is all-powerful. Well, I'm afraid of this because I don't know if God knows. God is all-knowing. Well, what if God doesn't see what I'm going through? He's everywhere, right? And so when we fear, whatever we fear, that's not the problem. But when that fear begins to linger, it calls into question the fact that God can, that God will, that God does. And so fear and anxiety and worry, while we know the Bible says be anxious for nothing, we have to remind ourselves why. I don't fear because I know that the Lord will take care of it. And if the Lord doesn't take care of it the way I think He will, that's okay too. I trust Him. I trust that He has it all figured out. And He goes on to list two things that I don't think any of us are inclined to really want. Psalm 69 verse 3 is prison. We see here He says that you are going to be thrown into prison. But Psalm 69 verse 33 says, For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise His prisoners. He does not despise His prisoners. It's not a punishment. If you were to be thrown into prison for your faith, it's not because God despises you or looks down on you, but there is something He's trying to accomplish. It says here that you may be tested. Think about Paul and Silas while they were in prison singing. Think about all the ways that God can work. Think about Joseph in the prison. Think about how God can work and move. And the second one that they would possibly faith is death. Death. And we know that even though we are Christians, death can be an issue of concern. It can be an issue of concern of how do I live without my loved one? How do I deal with the separation? All of those things in the uncertainty. But in Psalms 23, 4, a very familiar chapter of Scripture, for the, oh, that's not the right verse. Copy, Copy and paste. Yeah, yeah. 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 See? That's what happens when you got fat fingers and a small mouth. So, but yes. And so it's that confidence that the Lord is with us in that. And we should be confident in Him. But my favorite part of this, and then I'll stop for discussion is that tribulation does not last forever. Now, there's a lot of opinions on why the Lord says 10 days and, and all of those things. And what I can tell you is, I don't think there's a good explanation for any of it in those kind of things. But when He gives us a number, it gives us this idea that, okay, 10's not forever. It's not permanent. It's for a season. And when you read Psalm 30, verse 5... For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We have this promise just like they do that, hey, persecution is going to come. Things are going to get difficult, but it's not going to last forever. Whether God delivers you on this earth or takes you to heaven, tribulation doesn't last forever. And that's why I started with He is the first and the last. Because when tribulation happens, when difficulties are going on in a marriage, when things are hard at church, it seems like, is it ever going to get better? And the answer is yes. The Lord knows and sees and understands. And I can't comprehend this, but just think about this for a moment. Just imagine if it's your kids that's being thrown in prison for their faith. Just imagine if it's your wife 
that has been thrown in prison is standing trial for their Christian faith. Sometimes we think about ourselves, but what I have realized as a parent is this, and as a husband is this. I would much rather go through that than have to watch them. I would much rather have it done to me than them. And uh, so I, I actually just had this conversation in a meeting earlier. I said, if they're upset, you know, just send them to me, right? I'll, I'll take it. I've, you know, I've got a lot to be chewed on, all right? So um, I, you send it this way. But in our faith and the people we love the most, if I'm waiting on suffering for them, I'm hoping, God, when is it going to be over? When is this going to end? And God says, it won't last forever. Weeping might endure for the evening. And those are such encouraging words. But joy comes in the morning. Questions, thoughts? Amen. Mm-hmm. God doesn't just work an ending up. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Peter went through his denial, mm-hmm. it was a purpose for that to strengthen him so he could strengthen the church. Absolutely. And if you have ever read anything on this, you have probably heard this statement A persecuted church is a pure church. And I don't really like that statement because I don't think there's any pure group of believers other than what Christ says about us. But the meaning behind that is sometimes the Lord kicks the bush to see what flies out. Not everyone that sits on a church pew is a believer. Not everyone who votes in a business meeting has the Spirit of God. Not everyone who stands behind the pulpit is a man of God. And persecution is sometimes how the Lord uses to shake that out. Because if you're going to lose everything in this earth that you value and you don't really believe it, you're probably not going to claim it. And so the Lord will shake the church to purify it. Now, I hope we never have any major problems. (laughs) I've heard pastors say, Lord, bring the problems to our church that you can sort it out. No, I'm more of a don't pull the wheat and tears up, let the Lord sort it out when we get there kind of guy, all right? That's how I'm read with other pastor, okay? But sometimes if you and I think about the most difficult moments in church and we see people go different directions in different situations, sometimes the Lord is just sifting the group. Maybe the Lord knows that it's not something that is really important, but that those problems and disagreements might blow up later on. And so the Lord separates us, the Lord moves us, and we have to be okay with that. That doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to something that's wrong or someone that's mistreated. But the Lord puts us where He wants us. And we have to be okay with that. And when difficult times come in church, it should first be a time of each of us to reflect. Lord, is my relationship with you about you or is it about the church? Lord, is it about you or my like or dislike for a pastor? Lord, is my love for you or my Sunday school class? Because the Lord wants you to know where your faith really is. I I believe this with all my heart. When a church makes a pastor an idol, the Lord takes the idol. I believe that. You're saying, Jake, don't worry about that here. We know you. Trust me, I know. If the Lord makes a Sunday school teacher, if you make them an idol, I believe the Lord will move the teacher. And so we have to be very careful about loving the Lord first and then loving others. When that balance gets out of whack, dangerous things happen to the child of God. Thoughts, questions? From the beginning when we're talking about the slander, and that's where it turns into slander is affecting each other that you guys Mm -hmm. are worried about us. If that's what you're offended. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the Word of God. That's where we stand on. That's what we discuss. That's what we use. The last thing, and I'll be done. A faithful church 
listens and responds. A faithful church listens and responds. In verse 11 it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And if you flip back over to the first church there in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear. If you go on to the compromising church in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear. If you go on into the next church, down in verse um, uh, 29, He who has an ear, let him hear. If you go on to the dead church in verse 6 of chapter 3, He who has an ear, let him hear. And so if you go down to verse 13, under the faithful church, He who has an ear, let him hear. And if you go on to the last church, He who has an ear in verse 22, let him hear. So it's repeated each time. It gives us this idea that the Lord wants us to hear, He wants us to listen, and He wants us to respond. And so if you remember in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, Revelation 1 verse 3, we see this same principle when it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. And so we know that the book of Revelation is a blessing. It's a promised blessing for those who listen, those who read it, and those who obey it, those who put it into practice. And so this mindset is throughout the entire book of Revelation. And this is why this is written to a church, to a group of people who are filled with the Spirit, bought by the blood, children of God. And so he tells them to hear because why? Because the danger is always that we won't. Look at Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. You look in the book of Acts chapter 7, and we looked at this just for a moment Sunday night. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. And so he gives them this instruction knowing the tendency to rebel, the tendency to not listen. And so for us as a church, it should be a reminder that just because we have the Word of God, just because you sit and listen to sermons, just because you come to Wednesday night Bible study, just because you have a morning devotion, doesn't mean you are applying it to your life. The Word of God should be, in t- should be brought in and applied. It should be something that we treasure. It should be something that we enjoy. But yet if we just learn it for head knowledge, it does us no good. It has to be something that we pray, Lord... Let your word sink into my heart. Lord, allow your spirit to show me the things that you want for me. Because I don't know if you know this or not, you can read the Bible and you can quote it and be totally wrong. And uh, I always love listening to different pastors on the areas of Scripture they don't like. Because they'll usually say something like this. Well, this is what it says, but it's not what it really means. And if you have to say that, you're probably in a dangerous spot. Now you might read it and say, you know what, this is what it says. It says something here in this passage of Scripture, so it might be a paradox. We're not really sure how God works it out, but He does. But if you have to read through a passage of Scripture and say, this is what it says, this is clearly what it looks like, but I feel, or I think, or I I, I would say, that's very dangerous. And all of us can be guilty of that. I'll never forget 
Oh, it's been a few years ago. Um, we had a family that had come from a Christian church background. If you know anything about Christian church backgrounds, um, salvation and baptism are intertwined. It is a it is a very difficult situation. And you say, well, Jake, I went to a Christian church. And that's not what I believe, but that's what it teaches. All right. You know, a lot of people come to this church and have no idea what we believe. All right. And so we're not all astute theologians most of the time. And every time I would preach, every time at the end of the service, I would say, you know, if you want to be saved, you have to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. By grace, you are saved through faith, not of your works. Almost every week I would get a a quote from uh, John 3 or Acts 2 where it talked about by the Spirit and water. And every week I would respond, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is what we believe, and these are the verses that say you're saved by grace, not of works. And, you know, you can list tons and tons and tons and tons of verses, right? And every week almost, it was almost every week, this went on for like nine and a half months, all right? And it was never unpleasant, it was never mean, it was nothing like that, all right? It was just, this is what I think you should be saying, this is what you are saying. And... Um, we were never able to come to an agreement. Uh, that family found another church home. They found a church that's where they believed. They're happy there, and I wish them the best. But, friends, that was one of those issues that we're not going to change. We cannot change. We have to stand firm no matter the cost. And so it is what it is, and that's okay. And we just trust that the Lord will take care of it. And, um, and so just because you read it, just because you quote it, doesn't mean that was God's intent. That was God's meaning. And so be very careful when you study the Scriptures, when you read the Scriptures, to not just take one verse, one passage, but study what does the Bible teach in its entirety. Go in a concordance and look up every time the Bible says ear. It's a lot, all right? <laughs> or hardened heart, or all of those things, and get you a full picture of what the Bible actually says. And then stand upon it. Because the Bible says, The grass wither and the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Forever. It is something you can bank your life on, your marriage on, this church on, that God's word is true in every way. Right? From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it's all inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant. And if I don't understand it, the problem is not with the Scripture, it's with me. It's me. If science and Scripture don't line up, the problem is science. Give them long enough, they'll catch up, all right? But trust God's Word. That's why I tell you to take notes. That's why I tell you to... To, to go home and study those notes because, you know what, if some of you weren't paying good enough attention, you'd have thought Psalm 23 said, for the Lord hears the poor and does not. I wasn't trying to be a heretic. Like I said, copy and paste doesn't always work out. So that's why you should bring your Bibles to church.